Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook. This week, I am joined for a conversation by one of the longest serving UK small cap fund managers. That is Harry Nimmo, who has been managing UK small cap funds for Aberdeen and originally Standard Life that later merged with Aberdeen uh, since 1997. He's been the manager of the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Growth Trust since 2003, when uh, Standard Life, as it then was, took over a struggling investment trust with a similar mandate managed by Edinburgh Fund Managers. We'll come on to him in a moment. But in the meantime, we have had another very exciting week in the financial markets. I said last week there wasn't that much to cheer about. Well, this week, investors got very excited on the back of a number of significant news developments. Perhaps the most important of these were the latest inflation figures in the United States, which came in below market expectations, with the headline rate of inflation announced to be 7.7%, down from 8.2% uh, the previous month, and the core inflation rate uh, at 6.3%, down from 6.6% the previous month. Now, you might think of a very marginal beat of a single economic statistic would not have a dramatic effect on the markets, but in this case, it seems to have released a whole wave of relief amongst investors the idea being that if inflation is in fact coming in at lower levels than was expected, it gives the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the US, more room to moderate the rate at which it's increasing interest rates and possibly also the peak rate at which those interest rates will settle. In any case, it came very much as a relief rally. The inflation news saw the S&P 500 index have its best day since 2020, and ended the week uh, up more than 5%, while NASDAQ, the uh, the technology index, which has borne the brunt of the sell-off in big tech stocks and so on, jumped 9% on the day and finished uh, strongly up on the week, with most other equity markets uh, around the world rising strongly as well in response to the news, underlying how important it is. The notable among these was the UK mid-cap index, the FTSE 250 index, which was up more than 6% on the week, while the the big cap index, the FTSE 100, was uh, actually flat. Uh, At the same time, there's also been some other important news as well. Bitcoin, there's a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX, which has basically filed for bankruptcy, having been caught out lending the money that uh, people have put into its exchange for safekeeping in cryptocurrencies have been lending it out to a sister company, which has been using it to speculate on other cryptocurrencies. It's overextended itself. It's been caught out. And as a result, it has gone into administration and, as I said, filed for bankruptcy protection. That's big news in the cryptocurrency space because it is an unregulated area by and large. And a lot of people have lost money there and have little prospect of getting it back. The collapse of FTX had an impact on the price of Bitcoin, not surprisingly, perhaps, which over the week has fallen significantly from over 20,000 at the start of the week to somewhere around 16,800 at the close yesterday. So that's a sharp fall of around 20% in the price of Bitcoin. 
that is going to produce more of a fallout for other cryptocurrencies, I think, over time. And it's also coincided this week with a notable strengthening of gold. It may be that some of the people would otherwise be putting money into gold in the belief that it offers uh, stability uh, value during uh, an inflationary period have had the same thoughts about Bitcoin, only to be, uh, as to be said, disappointed so far. Meanwhile, also, we've seen the US midterm elections, where it looks likely they're still counting the results in a, in a few seats. It looks likely that the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives. But the battle for the Senate could be much narrower. There are only three seats left to be declared, and they're all very, very close one of them is going to have a runoff between the two most important candidates who both got within a smidgen of 50% in the vote. They're going to have a runoff, but that result will be known for a week or two. And that leaves the state of Congress in a bit of limbo. It means that uh, President Biden will have a House of Representatives, which has a Republican majority, almost certainly. But the outcome in the Senate, which is also important, is not yet known for certain with the uh, current ranking of the seats standing at 48 to the Democrats and 49 to the Republicans, with three to declare. To the extent that uh, this result will produce some element of gridlock in the legislative process in Congress, that is generally regarded as a boost for equity markets. They tend to perform well when Congress is gridlocked uh, with uh, different parties holding sway in the White House and in the two houses of Congress. Uh, you may wonder whether that's a logical conclusion or not, but uh, you might suggest that the markets are more afraid of uh, what damage politicians might do if they have a free hand than uh, what they might achieve if they do not have that uh, freedom of manoeuvre. That's another reason perhaps why we've seen this rally in uh, equity markets and uh, risk assets generally. As I mentioned last week, there hasn't been a period for over 40 years when the period between the result of the midterm elections and the end of the year has not seen some kind of positive stock market return. There may be people who are acting on that belief, uh, but also there may just be recognition of the fact that despite the strengthening of equity markets over the last week or two, the sentiment out there is still pretty negative and it doesn't take much for a resumption of buying to push up the index values around the world. Anyway, we don't know. Yesterday, Friday, Wall Street was basically trading sideways at the time I was recording this. Don't know where it will end. There may be second thoughts about what the inflation figures really mean. But in general terms, it has been a positive week. And that's been reflected in the investment trust sector, where there have been gains this week for a number of investment trusts. The investment trust index is up over the week. Equally notable is the fact that we have seen the average discount narrow significantly from 13.5% at the end of last week to uh, about 10.8% at the end of this week. And most notable, there have been significant gains by some of the trusts which have uh, suffered most since the end of the kind of growth rally in the first half of last year. So we've seen some of the smaller company trusts pick up. And meanwhile, also the idea that bond yields might be lower than they were otherwise expected to be has helped the uh, property sector recover uh, somewhat from the sell-off that we've seen over the last couple of months, rising bond yields being a negative for property and indeed many other alternative assets. So it's been a mixed week. We've had a fair few number of results and NAV updates in the alternative asset sector. 
and indeed also news of a fundraising or potential fundraising, not an IPO. Uh, in this case, this is a fund called Long Term Assets, potential ticker LTA, uh, which is managed by a well-known fund manager, Edmund Truell. Uh, he's going to list this vehicle on the main market and look to raise money over the coming months through a series of placings. So no fundraising immediately, which may be sensible given market conditions, uh, but looking to raise money in the future. This uh, fund invests in a range, a diversified range of global assets, including private equity and private debt capital. It would be interesting to see how that one is received. We don't know yet, of course, whether it will succeed, uh, but it's an interesting development. Uh, we've also heard from uh, Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, a, a recently launched investment trust that uh, is interested in developing investments in the energy transition business, uh, which says that it's looking to raise money through a placing uh, at uh, $1.03, which is a, a small discount to its current uh, NAV and share price. So there are signs if the market obviously continues to rally from here, then we will potentially perhaps see the revival of fundraising uh, in what's been a very difficult year so far. On the corporate side, we've heard from a number of investment trusts, as always, during the week. Uh, we had confirmation about the completion of the Independent Investment Trust Monks deal, whereby the 73% of the shareholders in Independent Investment Trust have opted to take shares in Monks. That will raise or oh, add £173 million to the market capitalization of Monks, the Bailey Gifford Trust. We've heard also about a change in manager at the Mijedi Investment Trust. This is quite an interesting smaller investment trust that was set up originally to uh, look after the money of some of the partners in a former fund management firm. They have appointed a firm, a relatively small and unknown firm called Mario Labone Partners, to manage the trust. Uh, and that will have a target return of CPI, or Consumer Price Index Inflation, plus 4% over a five-year period. Uh, and they're targeting an annual dividend of 3% of NAV. Uh, the uh, Majedi Trust is also taking a 7% interest in Marylebone Partners. So it's basically investing in the fund management firm that is appointed to manage the trusts. Meanwhile, we've also heard from uh, Biopharma Credit, ticker BPCR, which is a specialist life sciences debt investment trust. It's an interesting development. This They've announced a change in their proposal to change their discount control mechanism. Uh, it's interesting to look at the reasons why this is. At the moment, the mechanism says that uh, if the discount is more than 5% over any three-month period, then the company is required to apply up to 50% of any of the proceeds it gets from debt repayments to purchase company shares until such time as the two-week discount is less than 1%. In addition, there's a second trigger. That if a discount is greater than 10% over a six-month period, then the company is required to apply up to 100% of the proceeds from any debt and repayments it receives from the companies it's lending to until such time that the two-week discount is less than 1%. Now, what the company is saying is that having consulted with a number of shareholders, uh, they think that this uh, regime, while obviously attractive on the surface to investors, is actually not necessarily in the best interest of shareholders because uh, the commitment to uh, make these buybacks 
involves the company having to hang on to cash so that uh, it can meet those buyback requirements if needed. And that is, in turn, preventing it from making uh, new investments in the kind of debt arrangements that it takes up with uh, companies in the biotech and uh, pharmaceutical industry. So what they're proposing is that uh, this discount control mechanism will be loosened somewhat. So instead of uh, having these two triggers at 5% and 10%, uh, the, the new trigger now will work as follows. The first trigger will remain at 5% discount to NAV, and the company will be required to apply 50% of the principal being returned to repurchase shares until such time as the discount over a two-week period has narrowed to less than 5% uh, compared with the less than 1%, which was the previous target. And similarly, uh, with the second trigger, it's going to stay at 10% discount to NAV, but the company will be required to apply 100% of the principal being returned uh, to it to repurchase shares until such time as the discount uh, over a two-week period falls to less than 5%. So in other words, the effective discount at which the trust will have to repurchase shares is being loosened to 5% uh, rather than 1% previously. The board also made the point that these share repurchases have uh, costs attached to them and the average expenses uh, in share repurchases have averaged about 3%. Therefore, purchasing shares at discounts lower than 3% actually erodes shareholder value in that respect as well. So that's an interesting development. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how the market reacts to that. The certainty of a very tight discount control mechanism in the balance against the uh, potential opportunity costs of not being able to invest to make new commitments uh, of loans to uh, life science companies. Interesting to see, Biopharma Credit had, uh, has delivered very uh, consistently on its target of a uh, return between 7 and 10% since it came to the market five years ago. Also, we've had some further clarification from the board of JP Morgan Russian Securities, which you'll recall last week announced that it was going to broaden its mandate to cover Eastern Europe and the Middle East and Africa, as well as Russia, following the aftermath and the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has resulted in the 27 investments that the trust has in Russian securities being effectively frozen because there's no ability to trade on the Russian stock market and sanctions also prevent any repatriation of those assets. So the clarification is that uh, the investment trust does not intend to uh, issue more shares despite this uh, change in mandate. Uh, that follows concerns by some shareholders they would effectively be diluted if the trust raises new money, while there is still some hope that the Russian securities, which are valued at virtually nothing today, uh, may in due course, uh, if the war comes to an end, have some value. And there would be some concern that if the trust issued new shares uh, under its new mandate, they would lose the potential effectively. Their, their gains from any potential further upside in the future would be uh, much diluted. So essentially what's going to happen is that the trust is going to be free to invest its holdings of cash, which account for the bulk of its asset value at the moment. Uh, They'll be free to invest those, but not to issue more shares to pursue that ambition. So those have been the main corporate developments this week. Among results, we have heard, as I say, mostly from infrastructure trusts, but we've also heard from AVI Global, formerly known as British Empire Securities. NAV total return was down 7.3%, but that was marginally ahead of its benchmark, which was down 
9.8%. The trust continues to trade on a discount of around 11%. We've also heard from Aberdeen Latin America Income Trust, which returned a 6.8% over its latest financial year, compared with 11.5% gain in its benchmark, Latin America being one of the uh, exceptions to the general equity market sell-off this year. Uh, that one, ticker ALAI, uh, trades at a 9% discount. Uh, more importantly of all, probably we've heard from uh, two of the more popular and largest uh, investment trusts. We've heard from Scottish Mortgage, uh, which produced its interim results. Very interesting figures. Uh, as we know, that's been one of the bigger casualties of this year's market sell-off. They reported in their interim period a 15% decline in their NAV, which contrasts to their performance of their benchmark. Uh, the world index, which indeed was up 7%. So big underperformance by Scottish Mortgage, which is trading uh, on a particularly wide discount now of 13%. Uh, Scottish Mortgage has been buying back shares actively, but so far has yet to see that discount come in, though the share price movement in the last couple of days has been uh, notable, up around uh, 5-6%. The managers of Scottish Mortgage don't uh, devote a lot of time in the interim statement to commentary on their performance, but they do make the point that they have been very aggressive in uh, marking down their private equity holdings. Uh, That's been one of the concerns, given they have now around 30% of their portfolio in private companies. But they've been very active and and make a very strong case for saying that they have been trying to make sure that their valuations, uh, unlike perhaps some of those uh, mainstream private equity trusts, which take longer to uh, value their investments, Uh, They've been uh, marking down their private holdings in line with movements in publicly listed shares, of which, of course, they still own a significant number. The manager, led by uh, Tom Slater, who succeeded James Anderson earlier this year, emphasises that Scottish Mortgage is, uh, by its nature, a long-term investor, and it's sticking to that programme, supporting companies at various stages, uh, both before and after they come to market. Scottish Mortgage uh, was the largest investment trust by size two years ago and had an extraordinary year in the wake of the pandemic, uh, but has since uh, lost fully 50% of its value in share price terms, which is not far off the amount that it lost, it may be worth recalling, during the global financial crisis, uh, when it was down around 60% at its lowest point, uh, after which, of course, it then went on a rampage of strong growth over the subsequent 10 12 years, uh, propelling it to the top of the performance table. So it's not a surprise that it's sold off during this bear market, but its shareholders will be hoping that a similar story will now unfold once this bear market ends and the trust will go back to its uh, market-leading performance. Uh, Finally, we've also heard from uh, Capital Gearing Trust, the Defensive Asset Investment Trust, who reported that actually in the half-year period interim statement, they actually saw experience a decline of just over 3% in their NAV. Obviously, this trust, ticker CGT, has a target of not losing money in any 12-month period, taking into account dividends. Uh, And that's the main selling point. The trust has been issuing a lot of new shares on the back of its uh, resilient performance during the current bear market. Uh, But they have a bit of work to do to catch up over the next six months if they are to maintain that record of only ever once failing to produce a positive total return over their annual reporting period. 
those shares have an absolute discount, zero discount policy, and they uh, continue to issue shares. And for the moment, at least, the trust continues to trade at a premium. So that is the main news out of the investment trust sector this week. As always, we have more information for subscribers to the Money Makers Circle, uh, which can be accessed uh, via the website money-makers.co, where this week we have a further full-length investment trust profile. This one looking at Pantheon infrastructure. And we also have all our latest news and data from the investment trust sector, a summary of all the main announcements this week. In addition, I have written a series of notes about, I guess, the most important issue of the day, which is whether or not the uh, pickup we've seen this week with a number of indices moving through their 50-day moving averages, though they also look somewhat overbought at this level, uh, whether this is the start of a significant uh, turnaround in fortunes for the equity markets or whether it is just uh, evidence of the continuing volatility we've seen most weeks in the markets. Uh, there is another important indicator out there, which is that the dollar has weakened this week. I, we've mentioned for a number of weeks now the importance of the dollar in bringing tighter monetary conditions to uh, global markets and global economies. And uh, if this is the start of a significant change of direction in the dollar, that will have important ramifications for other markets, including emerging markets, which traditionally uh, benefit when the dollar is weakening uh, and uh, do worse when it's strengthening, as it has done now for more than a couple of years. And also interesting to observe the impact on Japan, where the Japanese yen has been getting progressively weaker uh, for several, several months, but has also perhaps turned a corner this month, having risen from uh, a rate of 150 to the dollar to about 138 at the time I'm recording this. So these are potential straws in the wind, and I set up some of the arguments for and against that view in my note for the Moneymaker Circle subscribers this week. Finally, on the announcement front, I need to report that we are going to be introducing a rolling panel of regular guests on the podcast, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy this uh, new format that we will be pursuing, having had a succession of interesting speakers in the last few weeks. There will still be uh, guest interviews as well as uh, regular co-hosts, over the coming weeks, and I hope you'll uh, look out for that and uh, continue to support the podcast as you've done so far uh, in great numbers, for which many thanks. As I mentioned earlier, I had the chance this week to catch up with uh, Harry Nimmo, who's the manager of the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Growth Trust, who announced a little while ago that he is retiring at the end of uh, this year, end of 2022. After a, uh, if I may say so, Harry, a long and distinguished career as a manager of small cap funds. You launched your first small cap fund when you were working with Standard Life back in 1997 and uh, been managing the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Growth Trust since 2003, when uh, your employer took over the management of a trust formerly managed by Edinburgh Fund Managers. I thought we might start talking just about that uh, occasion when you took on managing the trust, which is now a very large trust with... Uh, several hundred million of assets. Uh, but back then, it was a pretty fraught time to be starting an investment trust. Tell us a little bit about how you got into managing investment trusts and uh, what the early experience was like. Yes, it was fraught. It was subscale when we um, bought it. Its record had been uh, very difficult in the previous few years. 
the manager of that trust was a what I might call a an IT jockey and um, got heavily into TMT as it was called at the time in 99 2000 but but didn't really get out so the the, the trust performance was difficult in 2001 and 2 before we took it over and the, and the board clearly decided to uh, they'd had enough and they had a beauty parade and we were fortunate enough to win it but when you win a trust and you take it on there is a certain amount of disbelief amongst existing uh, large shareholders sometimes they just they simply had enough and they want to move on and uh, so there was a bit of a turnover of the, uh, the shareholder base. Uh, I think the fortunate thing is that there are people that um, new institutions that uh, maybe know us that uh, want to get involved. And there is a, a bit of a liquidity event. And as you might expect, the discount um, to net asset value at that time was very substantial. It was in the uh, high 30s percent. And there were a number of issues for the trust. It had a very expensive long-term debenture. Seven and three quarter percent, uh, which was going to run for years and years and years, and that had to be addressed. Um, we also had to do a, a great deal of, I was turn over the portfolio to restructure it indeed, and uh, that took some months, and uh, we achieved that. But the discount did narrow, but it stayed uh, quite high for a number of years, and uh, we got a um, what I would call an activist investor on board. And um, they actually developed a, if you want the full story, a 29% holding. And we were obliged to offer investors their, their money back. And the idea was that if more than half of the investors wanted their money back, we would hold the trust. So the trust in 2008 became even smaller. And at one stage, it dropped below a 30 million market capitalization. And I just wondered, in 2008, if you remember, that was the banking crisis. What was the future for this trust? Ultimately, the future has been positive. We managed to uh, turn around performance, narrow the discount. We managed to acquire or merge with another trust, the Garmin Smaller Companies Trust, in 2009. And then uh, later on, the merger with Aberdeen, we merged in the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Trust. So with capital appreciation and extra trusts under one roof um, being merged together, we came up with a, uh, a market capitalization of four or 500 million, which is investable size for most people. So uh, moved in the right direction over the years. But there were some significant ups and downs in, the, in that period. Yes, I recall you telling me that uh, when they came to the vote with that uh, 29.9% shareholder, 49% of the shareholders by value voted to take the money. So you only narrowly scraped through. It could have gone out of business, as you say, at that point. So your experience is demonstration that there is there can be sort of life after death, if you like, that uh, even small company trusts that have lost their way can, with a bit of good fortune and a bit of a tailwind, uh, they can survive and grow into something very substantial, as you say. So uh, that's a heartening story in a way, but not so easy today. It's also very difficult, actually, in the investment trust world to engineer mergers and, and takeovers. It's, it doesn't often happen. And, and, and to get three into one, uh, I thought was quite good. And uh, there are too many investment trusts in the smaller company space that probably are still too many. But um, there certainly were far too many 20 years ago. Would you say there is a limit to the size of a smaller company's investment trust before you run into uh, you know, capacity issues and, and uh, finding enough good investments that are, meet your criteria? 
I think you're absolutely right. Um, we're not there in our investment trust. We run an open-ended fund as well, and we soft-closed it, uh, let's see, 12 years ago at uh, 1.3 billion. So that, I reckon, is probably about as about as big as you want to go, and uh, one one and a half billion. I think that's if you go much above that, you you lose flexibility in terms of uh, your holdings and uh, trading. Well, let's can we talk a little bit about the difference between managing a, an investment trust and managing an open-ended fund? Obviously, we all know the, the differences. So you can use gearing in investment trusts, which uh, accentuates the ups and downs of the uh, NAV. You're not forced to sell into a falling market, and so on. Uh, what's been the experience of the trust and the open-ended fund since you've been managing them together? How have they performed and uh, which is easier to do? Well, I'm going to be careful what I say here. They've both performed well over the long term. Now, clearly, 2022 has been very difficult for our investment process. And, and that has affected um, both the OIC and the uh, trust uh, effectively in, in equal measure. So you're absolutely right. There you can gear up and down. Um, in the trust. But uh, there again, it's actually market timing is quite difficult, it has to be said. And uh, it's whether you uh, you engage in strategic gearing, whether you have a bit of gearing the whole time on the basis that markets in the long term go up, or whether you just gear up ahead of a, of a rally uh, or do the opposite is, is the question. Oiks, I've found that they are, we have not had any problem with liquidity. We have many, many shareholders, thousands of shareholders, actually. No individual shareholder dominates the portfolio. And we are long-term investors, so we have managed to run that without any issues in terms of, of liquidity. Now, clearly, the investment trust doesn't face issues of investors taking their money out because I suppose they can't. They can, they can sell their shares, but they can't take their money out in the same way. But as long as you're careful and you follow um, uh, principles and you're, you're cognizant of outflows, an OIC, a decent-sized OIC and smaller companies can work uh, perfectly well, I would say. The key part of it is obviously to be sure that uh, the investors in the different types of uh, fund or trust are aware of the differences. Uh, and in any case, being involved in small cap area, you have to accept the volatility, which has been very marked. You've been through a number of bear markets and periods during which small companies have suffered relative to the market and periods and they've done very well. And of course, in the last two years, we've had two uh, very uh, severe downdrafts in the equity markets in the pandemic. And now this year, we've seen a, a big sell-off in the markets, which has particularly affected smaller company trusts. So what's your sort of message to people about that? I mean, to your investors, you've just got to work your way through this, essentially. There's not much you can do sitting where you're sitting to stop the declines in NAVs, but uh, you have to uh, manage your way through the downturns. Is that not right? That's correct. Our starting point is that uh, smaller company investors have to do two things. One, they have to think long term. They have to have a five, six, seven, eight year time horizon, really quite long. And they have to be able to handle um, extra risk and, and volatility because there's no doubt that smaller company shares are more risky and are more volatile. But the, the long term is that uh, smaller companies perform better. And this is borne out by the work we mentioned many times of Professor Dempson and Marsh, the London Business School. Their study, they have decades worth of, of data on this. They back-tested it back to 1955. And, uh, and the bottom line is the smaller companies to um, three, three to 4% better than larger companies in terms of return in the long term. This is the per annum return. So that is a significant difference. And... Um, 
to me, that suggests that investors that can handle the uh, extra risk that smaller companies bring should have a portion of their portfolio within the smaller company sector. That's true, of course, Harry. But uh, tell us how this particular sell-off we've experienced this year in 2022 compares to some of the other bear markets you've had to uh, work your way through. Okay, well, I've had um, four stroke five bear markets in the last 25 years, and, and they are all always um, unsettling. And, and actually, um, they're all different. Um, they're, they're none of them the same. There are different factors working. Um, I remember back in... Um, my goodness, it was 1998. I was presenting in the uh, Majeski Stadium of all places. Uh, that's Reading's uh, yeah. ground. Not in the actual Air Stadium, but one in the back, one of the back. You didn't have that many shareholders. <laughs> there were a lot of financial advisors, wealth managers um, in the room, and they were all a bit panicky. They were all really worried about the Asian banking crisis and the Russian banking crisis. And now this rolling banking crisis was likely to bring down sections of the, the world banking system. And it was uh, markets were um, were tanking. And actually, they recovered very quickly. And by, uh, by the end of 98, there was, there was stability to return. Now, then there was the aftermarket, the tech bubble, 99, 2000, very strong periods. And then it all kind of failed, rolled over, and technology stocks lost value in a, in a very aggressive way. And really, it was a two and a half year bear market. And that's a long time in, in bear market terms. And it, there are shades of what has happened in the last year as the uh, you know, the tech leaders have lost value as growth stocks have lost value in late 21 and 22. So so that was that. And markets, small cap markets fell by 50% or more then. Then came the banking crisis, uh, 2007-8. And here again, I remember in October, November 2008, thinking that the whole banking system, the world banking system was about to fall apart. It was, I was worried about the Bank of Scotland. Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, many US banks, Merrill Lynch, American International Group. There's a lot of major failures and central bankers had to look lively and bang heads together to stabilize the situation, which they did. And the recovery in 2009 was absolutely prodigious. Then we saw COVID 2020. Our share price fell by 50% in the space of a month in March 2020. But the recovery was almost as quick. And it almost feels like there wasn't a bear market, um, but there was, there most certainly was. And 2022 has brought problems, a multiplicity of problems. We've seen the aftermath of COVID, we've seen inflation pick up, we've seen interest rates compounded by this terrible war in Ukraine that appears to be without end. So uh, many, many issues uh, this time around, and our share price again has fallen by um, getting on for 50%. So our view is think long-term. Uh, the problems that appear so uh, terrible right now will be resolved ultimately. And we don't expect a recession or a, a downturn to be everlasting. There will be a recovery. You should have faith in that. And as inflation and interest rates go up, um, central bankers 
what they clearly put up interest rates just tends to cool the economy, cools inflation, and shows to, to default and to uh, and smaller companies to recover from the cyclical downturn. Just remember that um, smaller companies um, or stock markets in general react very early, perhaps 18 months before the actuality. So, you know, the reality is we're only just going into recession, but, uh, you know, in theory, you know, this is banking's governor speaking, you know, it might be a two-year recession, but... Um, the stock markets will anticipate the, the turning point uh, very quickly. And I think we have to remember that smaller companies are at record low levels in terms of valuations compared with larger companies right now. Now, we haven't seen this for some time. So everybody hates smaller companies. In fact, international investors don't even like the UK. So when everybody's hating you, valuations are very low, and actually, the turning point is probably, you know, we've still got the winter to get through, but um, it's conceivable that the bottom will be in the next six months, is, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, the Ukraine war, I, I grant you, is a, is a tricky one. We, it'd be best to see some kind of a solution to that. And uh, I think you have to keep your eye on how things are, are developing there. Uh, you very uh, accurately described, I think, what's happened. And UK equities, as you've said, apart from some of the large cap names, have been uh, relatively cheap compared to many other markets. That's already the case. And then we've had this big sell-off on top of that. But if you're talking to the, the kind of companies you invest in, what are they saying about what's actually happening to their businesses? It's a mixed picture. In smaller companies, you can't avoid cyclicality. And, uh, and inflation is difficult. We don't have these um, banks that benefit from basically um, rising interest rates. We don't have energy companies that um, also benefit from rising, uh, clearly, oil, oil and gas prices. Uh, we don't have these pharmaceutical companies. There is more cyclicality going on in smaller companies, and there's no question that even the strongest uh, cyclical businesses will have periods of weakness. And we've certainly seen this with companies like uh, Big Holding and Marshalls, the, the block paving company. Uh, now we, we've got um, certainly companies like that that are um, exposed to um, retail where there are difficulties. But even in cyclical sectors, there are winners and losers. And in the first part of 2022, we definitely saw a say, a blanket sell-off, a blanket sell-off, particularly in things like some of the consumer sector, some of the retail sectors. And, and indeed, many of them were hit very, very hard. But I'd like to draw your attention to one or two that haven't been hit so hard. And I noted even today, we had a, a very positive trading statement out of Watches of Switzerland Group, the uh, retailer of uh, Swiss watches in the UK, Europe uh, and the US. And they're trading quite nicely. Their marketplace, uh, I can only assume that the, the more affluent people that uh, buy these watches um, still have money in their pockets. And this company are expanding uh, strong into the US and, they, and into Europe. And they have their very important part in developing their business. And they are actually able to put through price increases, even in this period of slack demand, which is is most helpful. They have a very impressive chief executive. Funny enough, he comes from Glasgow, comes from Castle Milk. Ah. Well, that would explain a lot. Yeah. So yeah. Also, 
a very rough suburb of Glasgow, but he is a, a very urbane and and successful chief executive in the in the watch space. He's the Alex Ferguson. His name is <laughs> but he's a, a most impressive individual, and he's built up a, a very strong business. Let's just talk then about your method, because you use a quantitative screening method. That's a very key part of the way your process or how you pick companies, which is based on a number of factors. I think I've had to summarize as being you're interested in quality growth companies on the whole, which have got positive momentum. In other words, they're, they're trading well. And in a way, that's more important even than the valuations at which you start. That's probably a rather crude summary of a very sophisticated model, but uh, that's my understanding of it. I mean, a lot of people think there's going to be a kind of style change, a new regime. Obviously, it's been very good for growth companies. Uh, before the pandemic anyway. Do you think there's going to be a shift away from that kind of style to uh, more to a kind of value base? That's my first question. The second question is, uh, you've often said that uh, the period when your trust underperforms is uh, when you're coming out of a bear market and there's a sort of dash for trash, if you like, highly cyclical companies. What are your thoughts about those two issues, about growth as a style and the dash for trash prospect uh, when and if the market turns? I should point out that 2022, uh, the first half of the year, well, the first seven or eight months of the year indeed, have seen a very substantial rotation from growth to value. There's no question about it. And that's hurt us a lot. Our valuations tend to be higher than the overall market, reflecting this quality and uh, growth prospects of the many companies that we have in our portfolio. And that has been deeply painful. Um, we feel we're actually coming out of that period as we perhaps enter the, the recession proper. And the, the quality and resilience of our stocks should provide some support in this, this period in the next uh, six months as the recession proper uh, comes through. So that's point one. Point two is that um, this growth value and rotation Part of it is down to the rise of inflation. We saw a rapid rise of inflation in the first half of the year, and um, that has certainly taken the wind. We've got to go back to the 1970s and early 80s for a period of high inflation of a similar nature, and our matrix and investment process was not established in the 1970s and 80s, uh, so it has not been tested by a period of of high inflation. I was sort of thinking, and um, you know, I might be a hostage of fortune here, but that uh, the real rises in inflation have actually happened in the main. Um, you know, we've seen inflation go from one to ten percent plus. Um, I suppose the issue is if it goes from ten to twenty, and that's painful for growth. But um, our thinking that uh, is that actually um, we've probably seen it as bad as it can get, and or fairly close. I'm, I'm not an economist after that. The Bank of England, the central banks are, are taking action, raising interest rates quite dramatically, and that will ultimately have an effect on demand and on inflation. So, um, you know, our resilient holdings should uh, be able to withstand a, a recessionary environment and. Indeed, if you do have some growth in your business, then you can actually ride out, to some extent, a cyclical downturn. Although it is always a surprise to me how many companies, you know, they might be growth companies, but there's still a a cyclical element of of their business. So uh, I think that's part one of your um, question answered. On the um, dash for trash period, now, uh, 
think we're six months or more away from that period. And, you know, it's, it's quite hard to predict when that, that turning point will happen, uh, whether it'll be six months or one year. I would rather stick with a resilient, high-quality portfolio as we move into a recessionary environment. There are cyclical businesses in our portfolios. It's, there's quite a few of them, Hill & Smith, uh, Morgan Sindel, Volution, Marshalls. Um, you know, we, we've got one or two retailers, very, very um, small holdings there. So you will still benefit from the small cap effect. And remember, this dash for trash, this small company recovery can be very, very substantial in its nature. So the trust will be pulled up by this. It, it might lose a bit of ground to the incredibly cyclical high-risk portfolios that uh, are out there. So I think we'll do just fine in a dash for trash. I think we will underperform dash for trash. But um, given the way markets are right now, I'm quite happy to be in a a lower-risk portfolio at this current moment in time. Some of the trash, of course, may well go out of business before we get to that point. That's true. And the other point is that the stronger businesses, businesses with better balance sheets, can pick up the pieces of companies that are, are really struggling in, in the downturn. We, we always see that. I don't know, it's not a very good example, but I think I might say that next PLC, maybe a stronger retailer uh, bought uh, Made.com, the uh, furniture company of the um, of the, uh, the administrator just today. That's true. And they and that only came to market, what, last year with a £700 million market capitalization, uh, which was, <laughs> in retrospect looks uh, very unwise. Another thing coming on the horizon is we've got the budget coming up, the UK budget, and there's talk that the you know corporation tax is going to go up and uh, capital gains tax may go up and dividend income tax maybe or the dividend tax allowance may be reduced, all these kind of things. They're all being looked at. We don't know whether they're going to happen or not. But that's not exactly the kind of backcloth you want to see if you're investing in smaller companies, is it? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I think it's no question there's, a, there's every incentive for the Chancellor and the Prime Minister to you sound pretty bearish and, you know, kind of tee up unpleasant things that might, may have to be done to get the UK's uh, economy turning around. So I suppose that's point number one. And point number two is if the government, the Chancellor, really wish to um, raise uh, lots of money um, quickly, I think they'd probably want to target the, the old companies, the banks, or the giant companies that you can... Uh, outsized profits um, that are very visible to the public uh, rather than um, make um, smaller companies that are the the bedrock of our, our economy and our future growth uh, really suffer. So I think um, governments, chancellors and the like, governors and the like, I mean, have to be quite careful before they uh, put the boot into uh, our larger companies of tomorrow, shall we say. I'm thinking also, is that, as I said earlier, is our, our companies tend to be more resilient, better balance sheets. They're better able to withstand um, difficult economic environments that may come about in the, in the next six months. In that context, I might also mention the AIM market. Last time we spoke, I think you had about 30% of the portfolio in AIM companies, and, and the AIM index is part of your benchmark now as well. AIM has been a great success, I think it's fair to say, for a number of smaller companies, and indeed a good hunting ground for small cap managers like yourself. 
It does appear that there's probably not going to be any changes to the AIM regime, the, the tax benefits that uh, companies which uh, list on AIM have and shareholders who invest in AIM stocks have. But uh, what do you think the future for AIM is? The, the market there has been, they tend to trade on higher valuations, and it's been pretty brutal out there this year as well. Yeah, it has been difficult for AIM. AIM has um, been a poor performer in 2022. It is more growth and new business orientated. And as we've seen, the, the value growth rotation has hurt uh, in considerably. Uh, they run a tight line. They need to be seen to be developing companies that require a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of, uh, I suppose, tax advantage from the government. I think they're a very valuable part of the uh, future development of the UK. And I think governments should be very wary before upsetting that. And I think in spite of what's happened in 2022, the market is a success. And there are very few other countries in the world where a sort of a junior market has worked out at all. I mean, I don't compare NASDAQ. I mean, NASDAQ is giant companies on NASDAQ. And it's it's not a junior market by any stretch of the imagination. It's not even remotely similar to AIM. I think AIM, there are protections for, for investors, um, uh, but there's greater flexibility in terms of raising money and developing businesses and, and track records and like uh, that uh, we think. If you're careful, uh, you can pick up some great businesses that are listed in AIM. I can run off a few likes of, of big technologies, auction technology group, Craneware uh, is on aim. We have uh, Serica Energy, which I believe is on aim, and Treat Specialty Flavors and Fragrances, Alpha Financial Markets Consultants. You know, they're not Mickey Mouse companies. These companies have outstanding track records and great growth prospects. And, um, you know, they might not exist if it weren't for the, the special characteristics of aim and the flexibility that it brings with it. You mentioned the discount, obviously, when you started, it got out to nearly 40% at one point. But uh, since then, obviously, you've got a much bigger trust and the board has a, I think you describe it as a semi-hard discount control policy. Perhaps you could explain what that is and uh, what you've been doing this year in terms of what the board's been doing this year in, in authorizing buybacks and so on. The discount today, when I looked, looked to be around 10%, and I okay. think your target is around 8%, but uh, uh, that will obviously vary from day to day. Correct. Well, sometimes, you know, when markets are in freefall, um, but, you know, buying any shares and uh, discount protection seems like almost like pushing water uphill. But we have been throughout this year uh, consistently, this is a board policy, uh, buying in shares. And um, actually, we think that's probably good value for our shareholders too. We probably bought back about five or six percent of, of the shares in the last year and a lot of it at um, decent prices and at uh, significant discounts so um, we have no plans to change this we think it is the right thing for uh, shareholder value we will, will, will certainly uh, continue it i mean the discount is higher than we had hoped for, but 10% is not a million miles away from 8%. So we think we should be able to uh, get back there. You know, markets are slightly easier in the not too distant future. So we think it makes sense and we think it's in, in the investors' interests. 
as long as the market capitalization of the trust doesn't get too small, and it's, it's currently over 400 million, which we consider to be um, pretty mainstream in, in, in terms of size. So, you know, there are not many uh, trusts that have formal discount protection policies. Uh, we do, and our plan the board's plan is to stick with it. Wrapping up then, Harry, you would say, I guess the darkest hour is always before the dawn. Uh, we're in a bad, bad market. We've got maybe a six-month period of tough economic conditions to get through. We're not quite sure how that's going to play out. But uh, if you were starting again in your career, you know, as you, you're bringing it to an end, but if you were starting again, this would be, you might argue, a pretty good time to be starting a career as a small cap fund manager because the best time to start is when things are really bad. I'm trying to put a brave face on this here, Jack. <laughs> I suppose I'm not really in the mood for thinking about starting my career again, although uh, who knows? Uh, I like to think I'm a young 65-year-old. But um, yeah, it's an exciting world, smaller companies. There's always things happening. There's always new companies coming through. And what is rather interesting is that um, when the recovery does start in earnest, and the new issues market uh, begins again, which it will, it's been pretty dead for the last year, there's some really interesting uh, stocks come along that you'd never even heard of. It's fantastic. And it's a smaller company investor that is able to get involved in these uh, new and exciting businesses. Um, uh, not, the, not the large cap people. You can spend your time um, worrying about uh, Shell and BP and Barclays Bank and Smith Klein and all these, these guys. But... Um, that's not where the real interest is, and it's not where the long-term performance is. Uh, Professor Dimson and Marsh, London Business School again, are other people that have uh, really drawn our attention to this outsized long-term performance you get for smaller companies. And I don't think that's going to change uh, anytime soon. I think it's a great place. And yeah, if there's young people wanting to start their career in, in smaller companies, and we've certainly got a, a youngish team. Well, actually, I should, I should add that's a mixture of youth and experience, uh, to be absolutely precise here. It's a good time to start. And how will you be spending your retirement? Are you going to be uh, still waking up every morning and looking at what's happened to the stock market, or are you going to be uh, doing something completely different? Yeah, I'll still be. Uh, actually, I've got a significant holding in the uh, Aberdeen Smaller Companies Growth Trust. You know, so I'm a bit poorer than I was a year ago. Um, but I'm sticking with it and um, keeping a very, very close eye on that. And clearly, you know, I've got to spin out my pension, make it last. Uh, I don't know how many years I've got, but, um, you know, Mrs. Nemo has grown accustomed to her uh, current standard of living and we wouldn't like to see that drop. So I've got my work cut out uh, in the next few years, but we'll also be... Um, taking holidays as you, you might expect and uh, you know there may, may be a book to be written although uh, 2022 has um, sort of not been helpful there uh, but timing is everything you know I'm actually looking forward to the next few years this has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast these podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels you can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.